According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Acts chapter 1, looking at the ascension. And actually, we're beyond that, because we're looking at uh, the session. What happens after he ascends? He arrives in heaven, and the Father says, have a seat. Have a seat. All right, well, we'll pick up with Acts chapter 1, and then we'll return to where we left off in our outline under main point 4. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of God's truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. I thank you, Father, for your son and for his life and ministry that we've been studying more than 10 years now. Thank you for the blessings of this class, rejoicing, Father, in your faithful provision, asking once again that you would open the eyes of our understanding and that you would bless us as we study to show ourselves approved, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, as we worked our way through, we started with a narrative here from the Gospel of Luke, basically Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, and saw the details there. <coughs> Excuse me. Secondly, well, there we go. Secondly, we had Luke's second narrative, which is here in Acts chapter 1. Parallel application from Luke 24, it's restated in Acts chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. Quite simple, really. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And he's been gone ever since, all right? May 24th of 33 AD, or May 25th of 33 AD, depending on how you take that, all right? How you count the seven weeks and how you count the 50th day. Uh, do we, should we start those seven weeks from... Friday, should we start those seven weeks from Saturday? And it's a legitimate question, so whether we're looking at May 24th or May 25th, in any event, it's the end of May of 33 AD, and he has not been back. He has not been back since, not bodily, not in physical bodily form, okay? That's waiting second advent. I do believe that he appeared in vision form, as he did with uh, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He was in vision form. And as he did to the Apostle Paul, he was in vision form. And uh, even for the three and a half years of Paul's training, he learned from the Lord, but he learned in vision, not in bodily presence. When Christ comes back in a bodily presence, it's going to be right here to the Mount of Olives. And it's going to be, uh, during the tribulation, it's going to be for the Armageddon campaign and the military destruction of Antichrist. Verse 10, then as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. All right, so in the book of Luke, he's closing a gospel record and it mentions that he ascended and he's gone. 
But in the book of Acts, he's opening the history of the church, and the emphasis here is that, yes, he's gone, but he's also coming back, all right? He will return. He will return. And so uh, Luke tells the story twice. The differences we're relaxed about. It doesn't bother me any that he doesn't mention the angels in Luke 24, or that he doesn't mention the, uh, the return in Luke 24. It doesn't bother me at all. Same author telling the story two different times in two different ways. And in Luke, it serves to close his gospel. In Acts, it serves to open his, uh, his, uh, his book of Acts. All right. We have other passages that relate to the ascension as well. Other passages that relate to the ascension, including John 6, Luke 9, John 20, and the mystery of godliness from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Which takes us now to point 4. I can't find my slide. Seven. Oh, here we go. That is slide number six. I should have written that down. All right, slide number six. The ascension of Jesus Christ was followed by the present session of Jesus Christ. And this is what we're looking at here. What happens when he gets to heaven? What happens when he gets to heaven is that he is invited to take his seat. Last week we took you to Psalm 110, took you to Psalm 2. We looked at these prophecies and their fulfillment. God the Father invites Jesus Christ to be seated at his right hand. He does not invite any angel to be seated at his right hand. No angel is afforded that glory. And the uh, redundant rhetorical questions of Hebrews chapter 1, to which of the angels did he say? To which of the angels did he say? It's applied mainly to Psalm 110, but it's also applied to Psalm 2. To which of the angels did he say, you are my son? That's Psalm 2. To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? That's Psalm 110, all right? And we take these great messianic psalms and we combine them because they are combined in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, so God the Father invites Jesus Christ to be seated at his right hand. This session is closely identified with his Melchizedek priesthood. In the context there, join me, let's turn to Psalm 110, take a look at it again. Quickly, we won't take a lot of time with it because I thought we covered it pretty well last week. But Psalm 110... The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, to my Adonai. Remember, Jesus stumped the Pharisees on this because David calls him my Adonai. He is his son, but he's also his Adonai. He is also his Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The session is the prerogative of God the Father, and it will end when God the Father says so. When God the Father has accomplished what he says he will accomplish on behalf of God the Son. Uh, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. When God the Father gives the word, Jesus Christ will go and take his seat um, on the throne of David in Jerusalem. All right, He stretches forth the strong scepter. It's from Zion. All right, Jerusalem, not heaven. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's why he needs the rod of iron, because he's going to be surrounded by enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we have the ruling from the throne, and we have the priesthood. And there is uh, going to be harmony. There's going to be peace between the two offices of the throne and the priesthood. They've never had that before. There's always been tension. There's always been distinction. The throne belonged to Judah. The priesthood belonged to Levi. Well, in the millennial kingdom, Levi will still have a priesthood. The Zadokite priesthood will still exist in the millennium. But Jesus Christ will operate as a Melchizedek priest while seated on his throne. And we can understand that because we have the book of Hebrews. (laughs) All right. So the Father invites him to sit at his right hand, and this session is closely identified with his Melchizedek priesthood. No angel is accorded that glory in, in Hebrews chapter 1. Join me there, Hebrews chapter 1. See, I told you we'd be quick. Hebrews chapter 1. If I spend the whole hour in Psalm 110, we won't get any ground today. Jesus Christ is the exact radiance of God the Father's glory and the exact representation of God the Father's nature in Hebrews 1.3 and upholds all things by the word of, I would think, God the Father's power. But you could take it as the word of His power when, uh, as Jesus Christ's power delegated from the Father. When He, Jesus Christ, made purification of sins, He Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that is, God the Father. Having become as much better than the angels as he, Jesus Christ, has inherited a more excellent name than they. Remember, he humbled himself and he became for a little while lower than the angels. And by that humbling, he is now exalted. For to which of the angels did he ever say? Here's the rhetorical, um, who did he say this to? Never said it to an angel. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. All right. Now there were sons of God, there were B'nai Elohim, created angels, but there was no son, singular, of God, begotten by the Father. Every B'nai Elohim was created, not begotten. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. So none of the angels had that pronounced upon them. You get down to verse 13. To which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so here in Hebrews 1, what we've seen is a theological blending of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Of God the Son, Messiah, on the throne. God the Son, Messiah, seated at the Father's right hand. God the Son, Messiah, operating in Melchizedek priesthood. That's what the session of Jesus Christ is all about. All right? God the Son seated at the Father's right hand. God the Son operating in the Melchizedek priesthood. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. What's our confession? Melchizedek priesthood. All right? The royal family of God, the body of Christ, the church. We got through C and D last week, did we not? Yes, we got to where he took a stand, greeting Stephen and his martyrdom. I remember that. All right, point C, Jesus referenced the session when he asserted his deity at his trial. Was he focused on the cross? No, he was focused on the joy set before him. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and was seated at the Father's right hand. It was for the joy set before him. 
He asked uh, at his trial, Luke twenty two sixty nine, at his trial, and they adjure him by the name of uh, Yahweh. So he can no longer stay silent at this point. <clears throat> if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I have a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's focused on his session, not focused on the cross. I find that interesting. Point D, Jesus stood to greet Stephen at his martyrdom, Acts 7.55. It's an interesting observation. We make a lot of comment on it because he is still in session. He is still seated positionally. If he happens to bodily take a stand um, to greet a martyr at his death, that does not mean that he is uh, stepping down from his seat. He's not relinquishing his session. He is still in session for the totality of the church age. He will remain in session until the rapture. He was seated when the Father said, take your seat. He has been seated even before Pentecost, really. He was uh, seated for those 10 days between between, uh, Ascension and, and Pentecost. He is still in session to this day, awaiting the rapture of the church. All right. In fact, when he returns with us to heaven, I believe he will continue in his session, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's just his bride will no longer be on earth. His bride will be with him. We will be with him in his session throughout the entire uh, tribulational age. All right, which takes us now to point E. And for this, we need to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. The session of Christ, the session of Christ provides for the session of the church. Ephesians 1.20 and Ephesians 2.6. Part of what I'm looking forward to once we go to take two years to teach Galatians is we'll take two years to teach Ephesians. If we do it in that order. I'm tempted to put Ephesians off to the end because it's the deepest. In my view. Uh, But we'll we'll see what happens. All right. Ephesians 1.20, here is Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God. And here's the prayer request. Paul says, I do not cease, verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. <clears throat> that, now notice he's praying to God on behalf of the believers in Ephesus. On behalf of the believers where he pastored for more than three years. All right, three and a half years, Paul was in Ephesus. Three and a half years, he lived among them. He taught them daily. Taught them day and night for three and a half years. Day sessions, evening sessions. Three and a half years. And yet they've got a deficiency. And he's praying that the Father would meet that deficiency. So, uh, verse 15, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. Look what I heard about. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I'm asking that God the Father will provide this for you because you don't have it yet. 
I ministered among you for three and a half years and you still don't have it yet. I find the context for Ephesians remarkable. I also believe it encompassed more than just a single local church in Ephesus. That it actually was an encyclical letter that was designed to go to seven churches or more throughout the province of Asia. Similar to Revelation, really, when it comes down to it. In any event, that God the Father will give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That, that these believers will become paterological in their thinking. The knowledge of Him is the knowledge of the Father of Jesus Christ. And that's why Ephesians is paterological, whereas Colossians is Christological. They're so parallel, they almost teach the same doctrine throughout from Ephesians and Colossians. They're almost identical in a lot of different ways. But Colossians is Christ-centered. Ephesians is God the Father-centered. So I kind of want to teach Colossians first, and I think I will. We'll do Galatians, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, probably in that order. All right. Um, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. Okay? The object of what you will know. What is the hope of His calling? That's the Father's calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? The Father's inheritance in the bride of Christ. And what is the surpassing greatness of God the Father's power toward us who believe? Not what saved us, but the ongoing power that he pours into us here and now. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, God the Father's might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What was the Ancient of Days exercising when he exercised a work of power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and to ascend Jesus Christ to the third heaven and to seat Jesus Christ at his right hand? That's the power we have available to us today, in this day and age, day by day, moment by moment. But we need our spiritual eyes to be open to learn what that's all about, to live it as a reality, to operate in what we studied before, the by-present reality of being in the world but no longer of the world, of living here but serving there, of being heavenly focused. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Why is that? Well, because he was for a little while lower than all that. He humbled himself beneath all that and faithfully achieved all the glory God the Father ever assigned to him, even death on the cross. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Not only in this age, that is the present mystery age of the church, but in the age to come. All right, now we get to chapter 2, we find out that we are there as well. We are there as well. You used to be dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember when you were dead? That was before you got saved. In which you formerly walked. Look at that, dead men walking. Okay? You were dead, but while you were dead, you walked. While you were dead, you walked. And I'm emphasizing that because I've struggled with certain folks that have tried to convince me that dead people can't do anything. I say, well, dead people can walk. They're walking right there in verse 2. 
They're walking according to the course of the world. In fact, dead people can live. Because it says in verse 3, among them too, we all formerly lived. Dead people can live. Because they're spiritually dead, living in this cosmos, living in this world. Spiritually dead, physically alive. Living in the lusts of our flesh. So, dead men walking in verse 2, according to the course of this cosmos, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, unbelievers. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. There is your total depravity lost estate of the unbeliever. But, good news, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. You want a good definition of salvation? That's it right there. When God the Father, by grace, made us alive. Made us alive together with Christ. That is salvation. By grace you have been saved. Not only that, the most important thing, this didn't happen in the Old Testament. It was not a feature for Old Testament salvation. Yes, Old Testament believers were made alive. You know, pick your favorite Old Testament believer. It doesn't matter who you pick. Okay? When they became a believer, they were made alive. They were made alive. But they were not made alive together with Christ Jesus. That's the point. They were not made alive in Christ. They were made alive. When, when David accepted Christ, I expect, you know, it was a little boy David, and Jesse and Mrs. Jesse sat him down and told him about the coming Messiah. He trusted in Christ. And at that point, he was made alive. All right? And meaning his dead human spirit was quickened. Meaning that now his, in his inner man it consists of a soul and a living human spirit. And he's made alive. Now, he's not made alive together with Christ, and he's certainly not raised with him and seated in the heavenly places in Christ. That is not an Old Testament blessing. It is a New Testament blessing. So, made us alive together with Christ. Our life is him. The life that I live is no longer mine, but Christ lives in me, right? And verse 6 now, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 6 is spoken of as a past-completed action, right? Verse 4 is a past-completed action. Verse 5 is a past-completed action. Verse 6 is a past-completed action. Verse 7 is a purpose clause looking forward, so that in the ages to come. But understand, past-completed action includes not only being made alive, but being raised up and being seated with Jesus Christ. So as he is in session at the Father's right hand, so too are we. We are seated at the Father's right hand. We are seated with Christ. And if we're going to teach the doctrine of the session of Jesus Christ, we need to include within that the doctrine of the session of the bride of Christ, the session of the church. We are in session. You know, Consider the significance of what it means to be assembled together Right? Where two or more are gathered in my name, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. 
And we always think of that verse on, on an earthly basis. We think of that, er, that verse with geography in mind. Saying, well, we're gathered together in Ephesus or Corinth or Rome or Thessalonica or wherever. Okay? Or we're gathered together here on Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas. And so we have the assembled times. We have the particular days and times that we assemble. And those are significant. Paul tells them that when you're assembled together in the name of the Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit, I have determined to judge such a one. And they have to deal with a man of incest there in Corinth. But we've got New Testament passages that talk about why it is significant when believers are gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is significant. It's, 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 you know, because this is the solemn assembly. This is where we are. I'm not talking about if we happen to meet at a restaurant or whatever and we're eating food. I'm talking about when we are in the name of Jesus Christ gathered together right here in this lampstand. But should we, that's how we've always taught it, but should we start to consider our session at the right hand of God even as Christ is in session at the right hand of God? When are we not assembled together with in the name of the Lord Jesus? Positionally, we always are. Positionally, that, that's an eternal reality, right? And so, uh, you know, when it says what you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, it means we better be aware of what's going on in heaven. What you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. We better be aware of what's happening in heaven. Colossians 3 says, set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. We better be aware of what's happening in heaven. Are we aware of what's happening in heaven? Are we paying attention? Are our eyes open there? Or is that just a throwaway thing? Fix your eyes on heaven. What does that mean? Does that mean um, I'm unaware of what's happening? It says fix your eyes. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It says set your mind on the things above. Lay up treasures in heaven where thieves do not break it and steal. Moth and rust do not destroy. Uh, Revelation, he says, I advise you to buy from me gold and clothing and eye salve to anoint your eyes. We, we should be making purchases in that heavenly marketplace. So the session of Jesus Christ provides for the session of the church, and we ought to be operating on that basis. You know, a lot of money's being made, and the books have been sold, and the movie's coming out, and TV interviews are taking place. This kid that says he went to heaven and came back making a lot of money on it. His dad's a Pentecostal preacher, and he's making a lot of money on it and different things. I don't know what to think. I wasn't there. I can't look on his heart or read his mind or tell you what the truth is, but I will tell you when the Apostle Paul went to heaven, he wasn't allowed to write about it when he got back. And he was given a thorn in the flesh to humble him. So I want to ask that kid, uh, what's your thorn in the flesh? What's the angel of Satan that was assigned to torment you? What kind of torment are you going through right now? Just my thoughts. I've never met him. If he's saved, I hope he's saved. We'll spend all eternity with him. But it bothers me that all this sensation, see the thing is, this sensationalism comes in and then something will happen, it'll bring just credit on the name of Christ and it'll be a big celebrity cause for different things. All right. 
What does Jesus do in his, in his stewardship, in his session? Maybe when we observe what he does in his session, maybe it'll be a clue for what we do in our session. Maybe. Just thinking. The session of Jesus Christ features his glorious advocacy. The session of Jesus Christ features his glorious advocacy. Romans 8, 34 and 1 John 2, 1. The session of Jesus Christ features his glorious advocacy. And boy, when, when you consider what it means to be a believer in the church age and what it meant to be a believer in the Old Testament, I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. Old Testament believers like Job or Daniel or Moses, any of them, I mean, doesn't matter, pick one. They did not have the glorious advocacy of Jesus Christ. Not like we do. Not like we do, okay? Now they had, um, they had something similar in the sense of a declaration of salvation. I think we can prove that from Zechariah chapter 3. But they did not have the advocacy that we have. All right. I think there's a distinction to be found here. Romans 8:34. Uh, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us? He who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. See the basis for this is the past completed action of God the Father's sacrifice of God the Son, of Jesus Christ. All right? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, remember our life is with him, he made us alive together with him, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised Notice now, it's not just dead and raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So we have a glorious intercession, and it's a glorious intercession that takes place on the basis of the past completed action of his uh, work on the cross. That he is the justifier, he is the, the one who justifies and the justifier of those who are justified. All right, God is the one who justifies. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? (laughs) How in the world? Now that he has blessed us, now that he has justified us, now that he has done all of this on our behalf, he went through everything he went through at the cross. And he's going to lose somebody? We're going to lose our salvation? He's going to expel us? He's already done the hardest thing imaginable. How could he not keep us saved, having already saved us in this way? All right. So, now, like I say, let's look briefly here. Zechariah chapter 3, there was a component of this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were accusations that were leveled. They were leveled against Job. They were leveled against Joshua. Zechariah chapter 3. And so, 
think we want to be a little bit careful. There was an advocacy role in the Old Testament, but it was not a glorious advocacy role. It was not based upon a past-completed action. It was based upon still an ongoing tension between accuser and defender. We know who the accuser is, right? The adversary. If you think of Jesus as the defender, and or Yahweh as the defender, and Satan as the accuser, we have the court function that is that's not unique to the New Testament. It was featured in the Old Testament. All right, Zechariah chapter 3. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan is the adversary. He is the enemy. He is the accuser. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. So here's two uses of Lord. I think we can take one as the son and one as the father. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? All right, and so we can view on the defense basis. The defense basis says he's saved. He has eternal life. He has a brand plucked from the fire. In other words, he's delivered from the domain of darkness. He's no longer under your um, power. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Now I think that's significant. He's still clothed in his filthy garments. He's still a brand plucked from the fire, but he's still clothed in his filthy garments. Because if you understand Old Testament salvation and atonement and redemption, what that's all about, sins were not removed. Sins are simply covered over. There's a covering for those sins. So that in mercy, the, the angel of judgment can pass over and not condemn. All right? And then they die and they don't go to heaven. They die and they go to Abraham's bosom because they don't yet have their sins removed. They don't yet have their garments cleansed. It's waiting for the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now in vision, Zechariah sees this. So he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken away your iniquity from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Again, I think we want to be cautious on this. Um, the Hebrew language speaks of either complete or incomplete action, not technically past or future, but I think it's, it's a good translation here. When he orders to remove the filthy garment from him, they do that, and he says, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Completed action. I have taken your naked away from you. And so when Jesus dies on the cross and all the Old Testament saints, the sins that were previously committed, he passed over those. Now they're finally taken away. Now they're finally taken away. And so paradise can be uh, brought to heaven. And um, sorry, paradise can be brought to heaven and so forth. But the clothing with festal robes is still future. You will be, I will clothe you with festal robes, right? Because Old Testament saints don't get their resurrection and their festal robes and their glory until Second Advent, until millennium. Anyway, then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. <laughs> Here's the prophet in his vision, and he's offering suggestions on uh, those robes are nice and everything, Jesus, but how about, you know, a turban would look great with that. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. They accepted the suggestion. 
and clothe him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. All right. So anyway, in the Old Testament, and we can turn here, we can turn, I think we can turn to Job, when Satan is making accusations against Job and there's advocacy on Job's behalf. Yahweh himself says he's a blameless man, he's righteous in my sight. Um, There is advocacy. We don't see the advocacy in Job, though, like we do here. I think it's just the Lord on his throne defending Job. Here we actually have an accuser and a defender with an advocacy. But it's not a glorious advocacy. That's the point I'm making. In the Old Testament, there was a defense. The defense was, he's a brand plucked from the fire. He's saved. And so because he's saved, there's certain um, benefits that accrue. He doesn't belong to you. He belongs to me. All right, but he's still in filthy garments. That's the point. He's still an Old Testament saint. He's not made righteous. He's not justified. His sins are not removed. He's not, he's not uh, certainly not royal family of God, provided the uh, positional truth in Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> All right. Anyway, the session of Christ features his glorious advocacy. When, when you look at it in Romans 8, it's based upon the fact that he did not spare his own son. When you go back to Romans 8, you'll see it's based upon the fact that he did not spare his own son. That Jesus accomplished the work of of the cross. And on that basis now, the advocacy takes on all new dimensions. It takes on the fact that we are in Christ, we are cleansed, we are justified, we are sanctified, we are glorified, we are seated at the right hand. All of these things... He is freely giving us all things. The other passage, of course, you're familiar with is 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He himself, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. All right, here is our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here we have the understanding of what he does in interceding on our behalf. The recognition that we are positionally in him, but experientially we're still on this earth. We, uh, we do sin. We do fall short of the glory of God. We do from time to time. And so when we do, there's provision. That provision is the intercession of Jesus Christ. What might our responsibility be if we are in session before God the Father and we see somebody sin? Do we judge them? Do we condemn them? Do we get full of ourselves and say, ooh, I would never do that? Or do we occupy in our positional truth reality, in our session, do we serve in our session so as to be their advocate? to take up the responsibility to pray on their behalf. Yeah, that's what Christ is doing. What should we be doing? Brethren, if anyone has caught any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Okay? Haven't quite memorized the first five chapters of Galatians yet. It'd be kind of nice if I can correctly recite Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, and do so after reciting the first five chapters of Galatians. O me of little faith. All right. I don't think I'll get that far, but we'll see. Um, 
But this is our responsibility. In session. Seated at the Father's right hand. So, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. You may not sin. The purpose of of the Word of God, if we are occupied with Christ, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, if we are led by the Holy Spirit, if we are living according to the standard of the Word of God, you and I will never sin again. Is that a shock? (laughs) Okay. But that's an awful lot of ifs in front of that statement of you and I will never sin again. Because if you walk by means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's an impossibility. Okay? Another Galatians verse I've got to memorize when I get that far. I'm still working on Paul, an apostle. All right. The, uh, no one who is born of God sins. First John tells us that. It is not your divine paternity that will motivate your next sin. So when you do sin again, it's not coming from your old, na- your new nature, right? It's coming from your old nature. That's the problem. The problem is, is that we stop listening to the Holy Spirit. The problem is, is that we quench the Holy Spirit. We just put it out. And once we quench it, we're not walking by it anymore. Once we quench it, there's nothing to keep us from fulfilling the lust of the flesh. All right. And so if we sin... If we sin, in other words, if we quench the Holy Spirit who leads us, who guides us, who teaches us, who empowers us, and we've lost that filling of the Holy Spirit, we still have an advocate before the throne. We still have a defense attorney. We still have a prayer intercessor, even though we're carnal, even though we're unpowered, even though we are um, walking in darkness. Positionally, we're still in Christ, and he still defends us. He himself, the satisfaction, the propitiation for our sins. Mercy seat from the Old Testament. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Unlimited atonement there in 1 John 2, 2. All right. So the session of Jesus Christ provides for the session of the church. The session of Christ features his glorious advocacy. The session of Christ is the basis for our heavenly mindset. The session of Christ is the basis for our heavenly mindset. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, Hebrews 12, 2. The basis for our heavenly mindset. Yeah, Old Testament believers could think about heaven. Old Testament believers could see visions of heaven. But they were never ordered to set their minds on the things above. Their citizenship was not in heaven. They were earthly citizens in the midst of other earthly nations. Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Old Testament believers are made alive, but they were not positionally raised and seated with Christ at the Father's right hand. We are, since you have been raised up. And if I'm the pastor that baptized you, that's the verse you heard when I pulled you up out of the water. Every every person I baptize, they come out of the water, and this is what they hear. 
Therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's our heavenly position. It should be our heavenly focus. Our heavenly mindset. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Are your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ? Are you fixed on yourself? Are you fixed on your problems? Are you fixed on this world? Are your eyes fixed on whatever? Uh, fixed on uh, the playoffs. You know, regular season ends tonight and the playoffs begin. And, ooh, the Spurs are seated number one in the West. Or maybe basketball's not your thing. Maybe it's baseball. You know, we just had spring training and opening day. Woohoo! Resurrection message, right? The new life. The deadness of winter and the new life of, of, a, of a brand new baseball season. And on day one, you're in first place. <laughs> All right. What, what do we have our eyes fixed on? Fixing our eyes on politics? Fixing our eyes on the stock market? Fixing our eyes on, on what? What do we have our eyes fixed on? We're commanded to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. We should have a heavenly mindset because he was seated at the Father's right hand and we are seated at the Father's right hand. We ought to have our eyes fixed on him day by day, moment by moment. The session of Christ is the basis for our heavenly mindset. The session of Christ is the basis for our priesthood. It's the basis for our priesthood. This is why, again, I think it's helpful if we see what he does in his session, we can see what we do in our session because it's not different. We are in him. He is the head, he, and we are the body, but we are one body in Christ. What he does in session is what we do in session. He intercedes for us, we intercede for one another. He is the high priest, we also are priests. The basis for our priesthood is heavenly. Hebrews 3.1, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. It says, therefore, holy brethren... That's us. Every one of us is holy. We're sanctified. We're set apart. We are brethren in Christ, sons of God the Father, partakers of a heavenly calling. Old Testament saints were saved. They were made alive, but they were not partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus. Actively think about, dwell on, meditate on, focus on the apostle and high priest of our confession the levitical priesthood the pinnacle was high priest in our priesthood the melchizedek priesthood high priest takes second billing to apostle the apostle and high priest of our confession he was faithful to him who appointed him as moses also was in all his house he goes on to describe this moses was faithful as a servant christ was faithful as a son it's a big difference Hebrews 8.1. You want to summarize seven chapters of Hebrews? You can summarize it by Hebrews 8.1. <laughs> the main point in what has been said is this. Ah, thank you, Barnabas. <laughs> or whoever wrote Hebrews. 
You ever get lost sometimes in a book? This author takes uh, mercy and pity on us and says, all right, here's what I'm saying. The main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Wow. Boil it down. We have a high priest and we serve with him. A minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle. (coughs) The true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. That's the main point. He is in session. And in session, he serves in the true tabernacle. You and I are in the Holy of Holies right now. Because we're in Christ. Every high priest on earth, or every high priest of any kind, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Because that's what high priests do. <clears throat> now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Let alone a high priest, he wouldn't be any kind of priest. Because he's in the wrong tribe. Uh, remember, Levi was the priest. He's Judah. But they serve a copy and a shadow. But he serves in the reality. All right? He serves in the reality. And uh, a more excellent ministry. He's the mediator of a better covenant. It's enacted on better promises. And goes on to describe these things. All right? You get down into chapter 9. And you realize that uh, the earthly pattern served a point. It taught what it needed to teach. It, it related the heavenly reality, but it was only a shadow. And uh, into this one, it says uh, 9.6 here, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. They're in and out of there daily. But into the second, only the high priest, all by himself. So there's fellowship, there's community, there's the, the priesthood and the, and the um, corporate service in the outer tabernacle, day by day. But in the inner tabernacle, that is the most holy place, only one person, only the high priest, and only once per year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Okay, And the Holy Spirit is signifying that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. That as long as it's operational, as long as it's serving to teach what it's serving, is going to be limited. It's going to be limited because only one guy one day a year can go in there and even approach the mercy seat. It will never make the worshipers perfect in conscience. It says in verse 9, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. It serves a ritual use. It's good for one year, and then they've got to do it all over again next year. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. That's when the shadow gives way to the reality. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle. This is what he did. This is what he accomplished. 
I believe this is why we have multiple ascensions after his resurrection. When he died on the cross, the veil of the earthly temple was rent in two, and he didn't even bother going in there. Nothing in there but an empty room. Why go in there? I'm not entitled to anyways. He's, he's from Judah. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. That's how Aaron and those guys would do it. But through his own blood, what he accomplished on Friday, April 3rd, through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. See, Aaron had to do it year after year after year after year. And then he died and Eleazar had to do it year after year after year after year. And then he died and then whoever, right? All the way down, all the high priests and they kept dying and then their son would take over or even once it got perverted, the political appointee would take over. Year after year after year after year, Jesus Christ went in once and for all. having obtained the eternal redemption. Chapter 10 and verse 12. Well, let's see. Verses 1 through 4 says, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, it's a shadow, not the substance, Okay, it can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. That's why I think the Roman Mass is so tragic. It's a sacrifice again and again and again and again and again. According to their theology, according to their doctrine, they transform the hocus-pocus magic powers of the priest as they turn the bread and, and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and they offer him up again, another sacrifice. Another, every time they take Mass, they're sacrificing Christ. Hmm. Again and again and again. There's a point being made here in the book of Hebrews. Let's, let's understand the substance, not the shadow. They, can, they offer continually, year by year. They make perfect those who draw near. They never do. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Yeah. If just one of those would have made perfect, spiritually speaking now, the uh, conscience of the Old Testament saint, then uh, God could have ended it all and saved a son. Would it, they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having been cleansed would no longer, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Every single year. Here we go again. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a picture. It's pointing to a future reality. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus Christ said, I'm here to do your will. I have come in the flesh, a body you prepared for me. And God the Son became, uh, became a man, took the body prepared for him in the, in the womb of the virgin, in burnt offering and sacrifice for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He will be the sacrifice in whom the Father is well pleased. He will be the propitiation. Whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin were not the eternal propitiation for God the Father. 
<clears throat> so, after saying above, sacrifice and offerings, uh, you've not taken pleasure in them. He said, behold, I've come to do your will. He established, He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And so by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Hmm. Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice. That's why I think the language of this, I think, is such that it's pretty clear that it's pre-70 A.D., that there's still some Jews over there in Jerusalem, still Titus hasn't destroyed Jerusalem yet. It's still ongoing. It seems to me like the the present tense language of verse 11, the present tense language of uh, verse 1, and really throughout the book here, that that priesthood is still operating even though it's obsolete and ready to disappear. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time on and onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. The session of Christ is the basis for our priesthood. Remember, the sit at my right hand is connected to the you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Here we see priestly function. The Melchizedek priestly function. And we too engage in this. Verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we, who's the we here? All of us have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. You know, in the Old Testament, it was just one guy all by himself. But we're in him. We're in Christ. So he took his seat. He's in the holy of holies. We're in the holy of holies. We're in Christ. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. It's a living way. If you're going to enter into that holy place, you have to be alive in Him. He made us alive together with Him. By grace you have been saved. This is the new and living way. Through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have our spiritual priesthood. We confess our sins. We're cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We're operating in our priesthood in session seated at the Father's right hand in the Holy of Holies. All right. Finally, I'm out of time. The session of Christ is the greatest testimony to the once and for all work of Calvary. I've already read these verses. Hebrews 10:12. The session of Christ is the greatest testimony to the once and for all work of Calvary. Once and for all, because he's seated. The Father said, sit down. Your work is complete. It is finished. Well done. The session of Christ is the greatest testimony to the once and for all work of Calvary. Hebrews 10, 12 and 1 Peter 3, verse 18 through 22. This is the last slide. It is 1059. I'll read fast. Again, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3, 18-22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, our session as well as His session, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Remember that? 
who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, corresponding to that, that is the ark and the deliverance through the flood, is us. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. The once and for all testimony, and that's where we are in Christ, operating in session as he is operating in session. All right, well, what are we going to do next week? This concludes the episode, episode 13 of the Ascension. And so this concludes 10 years of life of Christ. I do, um, we will take a few weeks. We're not going to start Proverbs immediately. We're going to do a few weeks to kind of review uh, 10 years worth. We'll kind of give some summary classes. We'll kind of give some overviews. Uh, it'll be helpful because I'm going to spend a few weeks to try to compile notes together and edit some some notes uh, to produce a, uh, a Life of Christ notebook. So um, we'll get some summary classes, some reviews. And uh, for those of you that were not here in 2004, um, maybe some of that will be new also. And uh, at least we've got maybe seven weeks between now and Africa, so possibly the whole time before that. And then we'll kind of reserve Proverbs for after after Africa. So anyway, kind of my thinking at this point, we'll see... If uh, the Lord has other plans, he'll make that known also. (laughs) Thank you, Father. Thank you for 10 years. Thank you for um, blessing your word. And you always bless your word. It never returns void. Father, thank you for students that assemble to be fed on your word. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be satisfied. I thank you, Father, that you are satisfied. Your son is satisfied. We are satisfied as we feast upon your truth. Thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name, amen.